Every day, we get what's supposed to be the news from the mainstream media. With little thought or logical discussion, we believe everything we hear. We're not allowed to disagree or have an adult conversation about the issues. Believe the news or be canceled. We're here to disrupt that idea. Changing the narrative with your host, Cecil Grant Jr. provides the views of an ordinary man on a variety of topics. As a black conservative, he adds entertaining, deep, and profound analysis that should cause you to think about things differently. He's not here to change your mind. He just wants you to think for yourself. And now, here's the host of Changing the Narrative, Cecil Grant Jr. Welcome to Changing the Narrative. I'm your host, Cecil Grant. And today I'm excited to welcome our guest from Calgary, Canada, Mark Milkey. And we're going to talk today about his uh, recently released book called The Victim Cult, How the Grievance Culture Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilization. A little bit about Mark. He is a public policy analyst, keynote speaker, author, and columnist. He has six books and dozens of studies published across Canada and internationally in the last two decades. His work has been published by think tanks in Canada and internationally, including the American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, Brussels-based Center for European Studies, Fraser Institute, and the Montreal Economic Institute. He is a regular columnist. His commentaries have appeared in the Global Mail, National Post, and McLean's. Mark is also president of the Sir Winston Churchill Society of Calgary. He was born and raised in Kelowan, is that correct? Kelowna. Kelowna, Kelowna, British Columbia. And he currently, like I said earlier, lives in Calgary and is an active hiker, skier, and runner with an interest in architecture, photography, cities, and history. And his website is www.markmilkey.com, which we'll reference again at the end of the podcast. Uh, it's good to have you here, Mark, today uh, to talk about your book, which is um, absolutely amazing in my opinion. And it's very interesting, and it should be interesting to 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 everybody who reads it, because unfortunately, I think we all know somebody that's a chronic victim. <laughs> and as you state in your book, this is not meant to dismiss people who really are victims. Um, you want to point out that nothing good happens when you get stuck and focused intently on a negative past, or you're always a victim no matter what. And I think you speak uh, rather well uh, about well-known people in the book who played the victim role, and I was hoping you could elaborate on that a bit. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Cecil. It's great to great to chat. And, um, yeah, the, the main website, if people want to find the book, is victimcult.com for sure. Uh, they can go to my website, but victimcult.com is the one to uh, check out. Um, available across the U.S., a uh, little author self-promotion as usual. But uh, to answer your question, though, sure, um, there are some famous people you know, in history and now that, that claim to be victims. And uh, this is a problem because it actually takes away from thinking about what you can do about real tragedies and real victims um, or, or, and also helping people like that through. But a good example uh, is Donald Trump. And, I, you know, you bring up Donald Trump and, and immediately, of course, immediately there's a reaction. Some people love him. Some people hate him. <laughs> Seems to be like issues related to COVID. Like there doesn't seem to be any ability to, to what, have a conversation sometimes about these things or Donald Trump without getting people's backs up. But let's try. Um, 
So when Donald Trump runs for the president the first time in 2015, he's on Fox News. Megyn Kelly asks some, some I think, reasonable questions um, about his views on women, his past comments about women. It's, uh, it's a fair line of questioning uh, from a woman journalist, a prominent woman journalist like, uh, like Megyn Kelly. And later on, though, uh, Donald Trump starts insulting her on the show, basically, or on the, on the uh, debate. Uh, and then later on complains not only about Megyn Kelly, but about Fox News, which in, in many ways, you know, was, uh, I would say, treated him fairly kindly and with kid gloves some days and fairly favorably. And nonetheless, he complains that he's being treated unfairly and there's too much attention paid to him. And as I point out in the victim cult, look, uh, this is a fellow who's a self-proclaimed billionaire from Manhattan and put his emblazoned his name on skyscrapers, for heaven's sakes, and he claims he's a victim of too much publicity. I mean, his entire life has been about publicity. That's how, he, that's how he's made his money and been successful. So uh, it's a bit rich on that angle. Um, now, there's a continuum, I, I would say, of, of claimed victims or, or victim cults, as I call them in the victim cult, mild, moderate, and, and murderous to get into the serious terrain. But uh, Donald Trump is more on the mild spectrum, you could say, or moderate, in the sense that um, until January the 6th last year, anyway, um, he was, I wouldn't say harmless, but he was, he was chaotic. He claimed to be a victim. You could roll your eyes, dismiss this. Um, but he's kind of on the mild to moderate spectrum. Now, it's interesting because I think Donald Trump is uh, an example of a not very American approach to, to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, most American presidents have taken the Harry Truman approach, which is the buck stops here. And even Richard Nixon, who famously complained in 1962 after he lost the California governor's election and said, you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. A bit, bit of a self-pitying remark. People forget what he said next, which I, I, I play out in the Dick and Colton and recite, which is that he talked to the assembled reporters there in Sacramento that day. Uh, or in Los Angeles or wherever he was when he when he made that that quip, mm. he said, "I'm not going to cancel my newspaper subscriptions though." So even Richard Nixon, who you know was seen as a bit of a you know woe is me vis-a-vis -vis the media president, never descended to the depths of victim claims that Donald Trump did. So I thought I thought Trump was an interesting uh, current example, um, and uh, and actually doesn't help uh, doesn't help the United States and, and everyone move forward. Um, I mean, we live in a culture now, uh, you know, around the world, but especially in the United States, Canada, the English-speaking world, you know, the ones I'm familiar with since I don't speak most other languages. Um, we live in a world, uh, and in the United States in particular, which is a lot of what the book is about, we live in a world where too many people claim to be victims. Uh, they hang their hat on that. Or they say, look, maybe I wasn't a victim, but my ancestors were 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago in some cases, and you owe me. Um, okay, we can get into that. Um, and here's Donald Trump that comes along and reinforces this notion that everyone's a victim. Well, everyone is a victim or their ancestors at some point. So, um, again, without, without dismissing real victims or real tragedies in life now or, you know, a thousand years ago, we have to figure out what's valid to kind of say compensate uh, for or address or what we want to sort of carefully dismiss and say, no, Mr. Trump and others uh, or Yale College students in 2015 yeah. because you don't like someone else wearing your ethnicity's costume or whatever it is, you're not really a victim. So let's try and focus on perhaps those who really are. Uh, but let's certainly not take your, your claim seriously. And then in the victim cult, as you know, Cecil, I get into some serious examples from history where when, when entire communities and entire nations 
start to think of themselves as victim, this gets really serious uh, quickly, and it can have really uh, terrible, horrific ends. But Donald Trump is an example on, say, the mild to moderate spectrum of victim claims, where um, you know he, he um, rouses people up. It's, it's part of his talent, uh, riles people up rather. Yeah. Uh, but it's not helpful to tell everyone in a country where a lot of people already think of themselves as victims. Yeah, we're all victims, and you know you should have a grievance. I much prefer more positive. Uh, presidents, you know, such as Ronald Reagan, you know, pointing to the shining city on a hill or, you know, others like John F. Kennedy. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, an, you know, where Barack Obama and his, you know, his positive words, even if I didn't agree with him on every bit of policy. Nonetheless, you can find examples of American presidents that, of course, take the buck stops here, positive approach. Donald Trump didn't seem to do that most days. Yeah. And, and I think I was going to ask you as well in that regard, maybe with, with what's going on in Canada with the trucking you know, think I mean, Trudeau seems like a, like he's playing the victim as well. And sometimes I think down here, even our president Biden is, you know, he he proclaims he can't do this and that because he, these guys have done whatever, and it's not my fault that that this is that and the other, and the, right. the economy is bad because these people are greedy. It's not me. Right. Well. Uh... Whether Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau, the prime minister up here in Canada, um, yeah, sometimes they, you know, they, they will take credit, of course, for a booming economy, not a lousy economy, or when something goes wrong, it's not their fault. Uh, that seems to be politics. But the more interesting thing about, you know, whether it's Joe Biden or, or, or Justin Trudeau or political leaders is when they again tell the population that uh, and divide people based on race or ethnicity or whatever whatever it is, uh, unchangeable characteristics, which is really dangerous, and say to a portion of the population, you should be ashamed of yourselves because of what your ancestors did um, in the victim cult. I, I kind of take that apart. And Justin Trudeau in Canada ha has done what I, I would say maybe left-wing Democrats play to in the United States. Justin Trudeau, for example, with what used to be called Indians, you know, mm -hmm. indigenous peoples now, or native Native Canadians or Native Americans, um, whatever people label people want to use, yeah. what label is current. Justin Trudeau has said, well, you know, everyone should really apologize for the past in Canada um, because of the treatment of some indigenous peoples uh, in some cases in, mm. in Canadian history. And it's become very black and white. Mm. It's become very, um, you know, th there's no nuance in these historical discussions anymore. Yeah. Um, so let, let's jump back to the United States. I, I mean, I do address, as you know, uh, Cecil, the issue of, okay, should there be restitution for slavery? Well, this is a touchy issue. Uh, I get it. Uh, and there are reasons why it's a touchy issue, including, you know, social media these days can make something that happened 150 years ago or 1,000 years ago seem like it happened yesterday, and our emotions can be involved. Um, so social media, I think, doesn't necessarily help reason through these things. Um, and there are justifications for compensation. The Quakers, as I write about in the victim cult, compensated slaves when they freed them in the late 1700s yeah. because they thought, we are Christians, this was a great evil that we did. Money will never make up for taking years out of someone's life uh, and enslaving them. But nonetheless, they did the right thing at the time. Now, the question is, uh, you know, 100 and what is it, 55 years, yeah. 165 years after slavery has ended, um, should compensation be due, restitution be due? The presumption, of course, is that incomes and education levels and you know wealth today is a result of slavery. And the same thing happens in Canada on indigenous issues. There's an assumption that average statistics would show indigenous Canadians are less than other Canadians, that that's a result of, say, past or present discrimination. Now, I take all that apart in the victim cult because um, I think – 
it's 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 an art, not a science. The mm-hmm. issue of restitution mm-hmm. for slavery or anything else. But the farther you are away from an event, I think the less cause and effect you can link you can make, right? So if I step in your toe yesterday, it's quite clear the bruise is from me stepping on your toe. But something that happened a thousand years ago, Bill Clinton blamed part of 9/11 on the Crusades. That was a real stretch. So uh, it's an art, not a science. Um, the Quakers are right to compensate. Banks in the 1920s or beyond are right to compensate for redlining. I think discrimination. Um, both the American and Canadian governments were right to compensate Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians after the war, World War II, for taking their property, putting them into internment, camp, into internment camps. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they probably didn't compensate enough. I mean, I'm a conservative. Uh, I believe in property rights. You steal my property. I want compensation, government. So um, there are cases where compensation should be due. But I think the further you get away from an event, the weaker the cause and effect link becomes. But today we have people, as you probably know, you've probably read Thomas Sowell. You've probably read Walter Williams and the rest. People who argue outcomes today are based on something that happened um, many, many generations ago. I think that's quite a stretch. I mean, we should listen to the the argument, and I have. I've, I've read, you know, um, the various authors that, that make this case. Um, but uh, I think it's a weak. I think it's a weak link. The further yeah. uh, the further uh, history recedes into time. Yeah, and as you as you mentioned history. Um... Sorry about that. Oh, we'll have to edit that one. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. As we, as you mentioned history, um, you do. I think you do a really great job of of showing the historical victims. You talk about Hitler. Um, uh, I mean, you even go before that, and 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 the the reference of Cain and Abel. I mean, from from the beginning of time, it it just continues. That everybody's a victim. It's not my fault. Right. Uh, the Cain and Abel uh, story is fascinating. I give it give it a bit of a twist, uh, Cecil, in the victim cult, because uh, I mean, let's think about this Genesis narrative, uh, the creation story, and then Cain and Abel. Let's start with actually their parents, uh, yeah. <laughs> Adam and Eve. <laughs> what, did, what do Adam and Eve do? Yeah. Uh, they're placed in the garden of you know. Uh, the garden of, um, you know, uh, in this garden by God. And uh, it's a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And God says, the only thing I'm going to ask you not to do is to pick from the tree, you know, from the, from the tree of good and evil, I guess it is, and, yeah. and the fruit from the tree of good and evil. Yeah. And what do they do? Well, like a 14-year-old is told not to do something, well, they do it. <laughs> um, Eve is tempted by the snake. She takes the fruit, gives it to Adam, bites into it. God walks along into the garden and says, did you eat? You know, uh, you've, you've taken fruit here, which I told you not to. Well, the blame game starts right there, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. Adam even blames God. He says, you gave the woman to me. <laughs> Nobody's taking responsibility in this story, except God, who's maybe rolling his eyes at this point about these creatures that he created. And then Cain and Abel, a more tragic story, which I find really fascinating, because the Old Testament is full of, of these stories where sometimes people even argue with God and sometimes win an argument. Uh, you know, a lot, you know, arguing about the destruction of Lot, sorry, Jonah, arguing Nineveh shouldn't be destroyed. Um, you know, and Lot bargaining with, uh, you know, with the city he comes from and, and losing that argument with God, but nonetheless going back and forth. But Cain, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God, and God rejects Cain's, he brings vegetables. And accepts Abel's, who brings sacrifices, lamb, I guess, or meat, or whatever it was. And 
Cain gets upset. And, and the traditional Sunday school lesson that I learned growing up was, well, the lesson here is don't, you know, first of all, do the right thing. When you don't do the right thing, don't become bitter about it. Just correct your behavior and move on. Uh, and those are good lessons. Mm-hmm. But I take a slightly different tack. Maybe, uh, you know, as let's pretend we haven't read Genesis or had an interpretation of it before. Read it with fresh eyes. Well, maybe Cain should be pitied, at least initially, because here's the deity, uh, you know, and, and Cain's a farmer. He brings his vegetables. They're rejected by God. How is he supposed to know? I mean, you read Genesis. I didn't see instructions on what he should bring mm-hmm. to the deity to sacrifice. So maybe Cain has a right to be a little annoyed. But what does he do? Instead of, like other Old Testament figures, debating God, saying, well, you didn't tell me in advance, or what have you, instead of going to the source of his woes or ostensible woes and, and being brave, right? It's kind of hard to start a discussion with God, <laughs> you know. Especially uh, when you're going to argue God. with him. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's, he's the big guy, yeah. and, and uh, you may not win the argument, and he may be annoyed, maybe, depending on your view of who God is. But he doesn't do this. Instead, he becomes mad. He becomes bitter. And what happens then, this often happens in victim narratives and blame games. He looks around for someone to blame. Instead of looking at himself, if he made a mistake, he says he's mad at Abel for no reason uh, other than Abel is favored by God and jealousy enters him and bitterness. So as the story goes, he murders his brother and God comes along and says, um, where is your brother, Cain? And you can almost see the sneer in his face and the narrowing of his eyes where he, he says back to God, to you know, the creator of the universe, um, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the answer, of course, is yes. And God, of course, rebukes him, knows that he's murdered his own brother and um, you know, casts him into a life of hardship. And, mm. and the very ground that he's stained with his brother's red blood, the black soil is stained with his red blood, and he's condemned to a lifetime of, of tilling that soil. Um, and there's a lesson there. Um, that uh, you know you're going to be sent back to what you did, and and it'll be painful for the rest of your life to be reminded of what you did. Um, but that's what he did, uh, isn't? And isn't this like the victims we know, you know, who again really victimized or not? If they dwell on it, and become bitter, they often create other victims, right? And that's the problem. And this is, this is even in race relations. Yeah. Um, again, I think the great tragedy of human history, not just in you know slavery, but in in any you know in history, whether it's economic disputes, you know, Marx is picking on property owners, you know, under Mao and Stalin or whatever it is. And I mentioned these examples in the victim cult. The great tragedy of history is we too easily forget that the people in front of us are individuals and should be treated individuals. And it took us a long time in the world, and much of the world isn't there yet, in law and policy to treat people as individuals. I mean, Martin Luther King went along this road. Nelson Mandela went along this road. I mean, you've got all sorts of examples in history, black, white, Asian origin of people who wanted to be treated as individuals and weren't and fought for their rights, you know, women and suffrage. So we get to this place where finally in law and policy, we're treating people as individuals. And I think in the last couple of years, and, you know, and this is why I wrote, one of the reasons I wrote The Victim Cult, is we're regressing. Uh, and we're seeing people again as part of a tribe, and it could be based on their color, their ethnicity, it could be based on their gender, it could be based on whatever. But these are unchangeable characteristics, and this is a dangerous regression. Um, you know, and it's prompted in part by again looking at statistics, and you know, I mean, mm-hmm. again, if you, you know, I, I quote Thomas Sowell in the book, who has kind of disassembled some of this notion that uh, 
know, different outcomes between groups means it must be due to racism. And he says, well, what about faith? What about family fracturing? What about education levels? You know, we know Mexican-Americans, for example, I think have very low educa- college degree, you know, completion rates. Mm-hmm. These are these, say, Americans of Taiwanese origin. So guess who's at the income, you know, top of the income heap? Well, Chinese-Americans, you know, Japanese-Americans, Korean-Americans, because as a proportion, um, they have the highest uh, graduation rates, college graduation rates. So of course, their incomes are going to be higher on average than the rest of us, including white Americans. So anyway, uh, to digress, uh, the problem with this victim narrative, though, when people stop looking at people as individuals and start to think of them, again, as, as members of a group, is that they want revenge almost a la Cain or a mild form of revenge. You owe me for what your ancestors did to my ancestors. And this has terrible consequences in history. And again, it, it allows a person to escape perhaps their own choices, um, especially in a democracy. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you grow up in Stalin's Russia, you know, your choices yeah. are pretty limited. But in a democracy like the United States or Great Britain or Canada or Australia or France, um, I'm, I'm not saying life is perfect. I'm not saying we always get our way. I'm not saying everything we'd like to do happens. But we've got a lot of freedoms compared to most of the world and most of history. Yeah. And we shouldn't blow it by over-focusing on grievances from 50 or 150 or 1,000 years ago. We should learn from them. And I think that what we need to learn is we better be careful not to, under new justifications, treat people badly because, because what, their skin color is reflective of a past oppressor, whether it's indigenous issues in Canada, black issues in the United States, or I don't know. I mean, you can go around the world. As you know, I've got a chapter on Rwanda mm-hmm. where every, everybody's got the same skin color, of course, uh, but, but Hutsi, Hutus think they're victims of Tutsis. That ended really badly in, uh, in 1994 in a genocide, and I can, I can elaborate on that. But that's a great example of, you know, people can find all sorts of ways to divide, and it, it's not always on skin color. It's based on something else. Um, but the, the results are still horrific. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I mean, and people don't take the time to really dive into that and really see it. it, it, is, it is just as you say, and and looking at people as individuals, I talk about that quite a bit in, in some of the podcasts I do and the writings that I've done. And and also with regard to Martin Luther King Jr., as far as the content of your co- character, not the color of your skin. And we've and like you said, we've regret, we regressed. We're now looking at the color of your skin and the heck with the content of your character or anything else. And it's 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 not a good road to go down. Um there's a discussion with regard to diverse people even black people are diverse i mean my parents are from the virgin islands we have a, our skin may be black but we have a completely different up my parents had a completely different upbringing which they you know brought to to my sisters and i in the states but it was a different upbringing that they brought to us based on how they were raised and and we received flack from other black people because we weren't like them and it's, right. it's, it, you know, it's, it just isn't, it just isn't, uh, it isn't the way that we should live as a population. Um, one of the things as a black man, I see, I see w- what I call race hustlers, uh, selling the victim mentality to the black American com- community. And I completely agree with what you said that injustices have occurred, but like you said, to imply that, you know, you're this way or that way because of something that happened a hundred years ago is a little inaccurate. Um, and you talk about that, I think, uh, well in your book, and you, you've addressed that and uh, here here today. 
um, with regard to other minorities, I've always wondered why other minorities don't seem, why, why is there not an Asian Lives Matter or, or a Mexican Lives Matter group? I mean, and, and you talk in your book about the, um, uh, the four factors that Asians have used uh, to become successful in America, which was defiance, uh, integration, entrepreneurship, and education. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. This is one of the more positive aspects of the victim cult. Uh, there yeah. are plenty of um, you know, tough issues, that, as you know, that I address in the book. Uh, from you know, The ridiculous notion that Adolf Hitler thought of himself as a victim and the Germans thought of themselves as victims. And there's some truth to the Germans, you know, vis-a-vis the French. Uh, we can get there later. But, uh, but sure, on to Asian Americans and their early experience. Now, um, the first Asian American arrivals, and mass anyway, really were the Chinese that arrived around the time of the gold rush in California, 1849-1850. Now, initially, they are welcome, you know, maybe as a curiosity even, and they, they have a very entrepreneurial bent. The early Chinese, the earliest Chinese arrivals come from a region of China that was very entrepreneurial, but, um, but was going through all sorts of, um, you know, chaos at that point, and they couldn't practice their trades. So they, luckily, they ended up in California at the time of the gold rush. But as more and more Chinese arrive on the coast of California in, into the state, there begins to be uh, some severe prejudice and some hard walls of prejudice enacted by state legislators and, um, and federally later on. Well, what the Chinese do and the Japanese later, who start to arrive in, in larger numbers in the 1870s, is they do push back um, you know, in some very uh, forthright ways. So there's, there's a wonderful letter in the 1850s from an early Chinese arrival who sees something, uh, obviously in a newspaper account of the era from the governor, John Engler, who talks about America being only for white people. And um, this Chinese arrival who's very eloquent, already in English, uh, writes to the governor uh, and quotes the Constitution and says, your, your views are false in the extreme and you know it. And he talks about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And um, Chinese Americans are you know, whether they're naturalized citizens yet or not, do also fight back in the courts. There are examples from San Francisco where um, the city tries to discriminate against Chinese laundries, right? And this is one of the few ways they can make money. Um, and again, it shows their entrepreneurial bent and the willingness to do anything. But there are ordinances, local ordinances that are you know, under the disguise, you know, we're just trying to regulate the sector. Well, really, it's about being anti-Chinese. And so uh, Chinese laundrymen go to court and they win. Um, the Supreme Court says, listen, we know what's really happening here, and you're discriminating against the Chinese in your city. So they do win on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, there, there's an example of a Japanese labor leader who has to create his own labor union because the American Federation of Labor won't allow anyone in of color, uh, including Asian Americans. Yeah and are very discriminatory and, and again say you know this is a white man's union it's it's not uh, it's not for you of japanese origin it's some pretty nasty prejudicial anti-asian anti-black sentiment and labor unions around you know 1900 and before and after uh, people forget this uh, they were not exactly progressive unions that some imagine so they were, they were pretty insular so and there's a bit of protectionism there of, yeah. of you know their their labor as well um, so they don't always win. But the interesting thing is Asian-Americans or you know, those who recently arrived in Asia and, again, may not be naturalized citizens yet because they're not allowed to be 
if they're recent arrivals and they're Asian. Nonetheless, they, they do concentrate on pushing back. They also concentrate on being entrepreneurs. They also concentrate in education. And um, there were two chapters in the victim cult that deal with this Asian-American phenomenon. And it was really interesting in doing research for the book where I found these statistics from 1910 and 1920 and 1930 about the children uh, of Japanese and Chinese Americans. In 1910, they're attending high school and graduating from college at rates slightly lower than white Americans. But by 1920 and 1930, the children of Japanese and Chinese Americans are graduating at rates higher, graduating from college at rates higher than white Americans. And uh, this is fascinating because the, the usual kind of victim narrative or victim theology, you could say, is that if you've been oppressed or your your tribe has been oppressed, uh, you know, your cohort has been oppressed, you really can't succeed. I mean, it's all institutional. It's all structural. There's nothing you can do. Well, yeah, there were limits. I mean, Japanese and Chinese Americans were banned from certain trades, certain professions. Um, but um, they, they, they did the best they could within that within those prejudicial restrictions. And the education levels are actually what – this is the most prejudicial period in American history against mm -hmm. Asian Americans. The federal government shuts down immigration in 1924 and um, – you know, especially these are the you know Asian arrivals. So, uh, and there's all sorts of restrictions on the grounds, like like Black Americans faced. Uh, some, if you're Japanese in California, may, you may or may not be able to go into the same church as White Americans, White Californians, or uh, or a movie theater. So, uh, and this extends even into the 1930s, 1940s. So, but during this most discriminatory period, the children of Asian Americans are setting the stage for future success is the way to look at it. It's a cliche now that Asian Americans are at the top of the heap on average, right? Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, East Indian Americans, you know, if your ancestry is from Korea. Uh, but people forget that this was actually set, uh, the, the, the stage for the success was created about a century ago when education levels were already higher for Asian Americans. And we know that higher education levels lead to higher incomes and so on and so forth. The interesting thing as well is that family breakdown is not as prevalent uh, among Asian Americans as other Americans, whether white or black. And we know that family breakdown makes it more difficult as well to succeed. And I'm not, by the way, condemning anyone. Um, and, and people sometimes take this as blaming the victim. Not at all. Um, the point is, you know, it's, it's much tougher to raise kids with one you know, just one person, one adult in the household, then two. So, you know, and get them to do their homework at night, so on and so forth. So the uh, the interesting thing about Asian Americans is that, you know, if you measure success by incomes anyway, it's not the only thing that, yeah. that matters in life. Yeah. You can see the effect of education, of entrepreneurship, and even family togetherness on, on their success rates. And I, you brought up education, and I wanted to kind of jump in there a little bit because – the the same thing is with Black Americans. I mean, if if you do reading and talk, and Thomas Sowell talks about this, but other people as well, and then you just do some research on your own, Black Americans were doing very well uh, right. before 1960, and then it it just started going down. So, how how did we how did we go from being prosperous or educationally uh, astute to where we're now <laughs> barely creeping out of high school with, you know, a, a, a ninth grade education. And, right. and then the other part on that is you, you speak about the Asian Americans and, and, 
you know, the, the discrimination towards them. And I think from from black Americans would respond to you and say, well, their their victimization was different from ours. I mean, we right. we were drug over here by boats and this and that. We had to. It's it's different. That's why that's why we're victims and they're not. And that's why they're because they're part of you right. and we're not. And so how do right. you how do you kind of address that? Well, um, carefully and and hopefully with some compassion. I hope that comes through in the victim cult. I think it's a mistake again to say to blame everything on on uh, events that have receded into time. There are much more current factors. So I give a personal example in the book. My grandmother, as one example, you know, three years old in 1914, her family tries to leave Ukraine, goes to Latvia, wants to come to Canada, and uh, to emigrate to Canada. Well, they're stopped because all of a sudden, the last moment, several of them have, have eye disease. They have to be treated for that for two weeks at the port of Labau in Latvia. And meanwhile, war breaks out. So mm-hmm. their plans to come to Canada are dashed. Yeah. They end up, and they're Germans, right? So they go back to Ukraine, but Ukraine doesn't want them once the war starts. So they're kind of shuffled out. They end up in Siberia, for heaven's sakes. You know, you think Canada's cool? Try Siberia. <laughs> and uh, they end up there in 1914. And then what happens is, you know, they're working on a farm somewhere in Siberia. Um, I mean, not my three-year-old grandmother or six-year-old, you know, a couple of years later, but, you know, but her family. And... Um, and then what happens? The Bolsheviks, the communists take over Russia. Well, they're, they're on the move again, back to Central Europe. They finally make their way to Canada. But as a kid, I remember looking at my grandmother, and she was signing a document one time, and she signs it with an X. And I asked my dad, I said, why isn't Grandma signing her name? And he said, well, she never learned how to read or write. In essence, she was a child refugee for about 13 years, 14 years before they came to Canada. You know, and made made the best life they could. Now I say that because look, if, if they were Rockefellers, if, if my last name was Rockefeller or my you know grandparents were, obviously my life would be slightly different. So I'm not I'm not completely um, you know um, dismissing the notion that what happened 100 years ago matters, right? If your name is Forbes, if your last name is Forbes or Rockefeller or Ford, you know, and you're connected to the auto industry, that Ford, then okay, you know, you're probably set up. But, you know, we also know, you know, third generation businesses can screw it up and lose it all. So my point is over time, the waves of time Mm -hmm. really, I think, wash over the effects of what happened. Uh, And it's not to dismiss the, again, horrific tragedies of history, but to blame something. I mean, Thomas Sowell does this brilliantly, and I quote him in The Victim Cult, where he says, how can you blame black family breakdown, as you know, Cecil, on slavery? Because black families were mostly together until the 1940s, 1950s, and then for various reasons, cultural, you know, the welfare state, whatever you want to blame it on, they began to come apart. And this is noticed by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in a famous 1965, I think it was, report on the breakdown of the black family. And he's accused of blaming the victim or accused of being racist. And I I think that, and there was even a, a, a book published in 1972 called Blaming the Victim, where this accusation still comes up that by pointing out what's happening, and pointing out statistics and facts, you're, you're accused of blaming the victim. No, what we're saying is there's a cause and effect link. And um, and also in reverse, there's not. You can't blame slavery really for the breakdown of the black American family if it was more together in the 1920s and 1930s than in the 1970s. So one has to be honest about what's causing that. And, and there may be nothing one can do. There may be good reasons why a family breaks up. An abused spouse shouldn't have to stay with her, with her husband. Yeah. So... Um, Again, one should be careful not to condemn or make assumptions. But in terms of if you want to kind of take a look, of, take a statistical or factual sociological look at what's happening, um, 
there, there are other factors, again, cultural factors, you know, uh, family factors, faith factors, education factors. And education, of course, the wacky mm. theories that have begun to come up in education over the last 50 years, uh, and they seem to just, you know, uh, come into vogue and, and go out again. Well, that can have a terribly deleterious effect upon people's education, kids' education, and then they're hampered for life. So uh, blame the education system and the breakdown in the education system, um, you know, more than, more than uh, again, the, the events of, of the 1860s and beyond, I would say. Yeah. And I think the, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenging part, and again, I, I, I think your book is brilliant, but the challenging part about discussing the issues that you present with other people, maybe people, black people, whoever, victims, people who perceive themselves to be victims, is that you will, as you get into the meat of it, I think as you begin to appeal back and say, you need to look at this and we need to talk about this, all of a sudden you're a racist. That that, that just ends the whole conversation. How do, yeah. we, how do we have, how can we t- at least discuss this issue without, and maybe even somebody calls you that, but you need, right. how do you get past that? I guess you just, you know, you have to keep going um, and not let that, that bother you um, and hope that, uh, you know, reason and facts and stories, you know, will change minds eventually. I think it's a bit, Cecil, I think it's a bit like, you know, when you walk outside, you walk by a restaurant, you know, you're not hungry, but when you smell, you know, something, you know, from a restaurant nearby, it's like, oh, I think all of a sudden I want that for dinner tonight, right? Or maybe I'll go into that restaurant and yeah. order something up. I think ideas are a bit like that. When people are told everything is due to racism, right? And, and uh, you know, Kendall, uh, sorry, Kendall X, Candy, you know, makes this argument. I mean, he, he's a very clever fellow. He redefines racism as any difference in outcomes between groups, which again ignores cultural beliefs, it ignores faith, it ignores education, it ignores family breakdown. So I don't think it's a terribly persuasive theory, but nonetheless, it's caught on. Um, well, I think when you say, are you really sure that that's the cause for everything, the cause for every difference in outcomes, then, um, and you start to show some facts how, you know, okay, why do, you know, you know again, your ancestry from, uh, you know, um, which island was it? Uh, St. Thomas, Virgin uh, Island. Yeah. You know, why do some black Americans have higher graduation rates and higher education rates and higher incomes uh, from that cohort as opposed to, you know, another, uh, you know, origin, um, you know, when, when you trace the family, you know, roots yeah. back. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you start to ask those questions, then it becomes much more difficult uh, to say, well, there's a monocausal effect going on here. I mean, most things are not due to one particular cause, but a multiplicity of causes. Uh, so I think all you can do is hope that most people eventually are fair-minded, you know, and these things also tend to burn themselves out. Um, I mean, I've seen this again in, in, you know, in terms of indigenous issues in Canada. We've been having the same debates for, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years, and it's all about the money. It's all about the historical oppression, and more and more money has gone into what used to be called Indian reserves or what are called First Nations reserves now in Canada, and I think it's the same in the United States. Well, um, I'm not seeing a great uptick in the statistics in terms of on some of the remote reserves. And to me, it's much more simple, whether it's a remote reserve, say, in Alaska or in Canada for, you know, Indians, Mm -hmm. indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe we ought to look at the location 
right? If you're in the middle of nowhere, far from geographic, far from education, far from income opportunities, that's going to depress your incomes. It's just that simple. Um, so to blame everything on racism in terms of indigenous issues in the United States or Canada or uh, when it comes to black issues in the United States or others, I would say this as well. I think also maybe when you, when you portray positive examples, um, yeah. and again, one has to be very careful here. I don't think any tribe has suffered more than Jews in the history of the world. I mean, look, you know, World War II and the Holocaust, um, and even the creation of the State of Israel. One of the things I do in the victim cult is I, I talk about the approach of Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians after 1948 and the creation of the State of Israel. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, there was as many Jews in Arab countries that had to flee Arab countries or were expelled after the creation of the State of Israel because they were mad, Jews basically, Arabs were, for the creation of the State of Israel. There were as many Jews, about 700,000, who were expelled or fled Arab countries after 1948 and over the next decade as fled or were expelled in, in the war in 1948 that, that established the state of Israel uh, as Arabs, about 700,000. Now, some voluntarily left. Some were, you know, a casualty of war and expelled from certain, you know, parts of what became Israel. But I, I bring this up in, in my chapter on Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian approach to say this is, this is a horrific tragedy. I mean, two nationalist movements meet and clash. You know, you want to sort through all that and try and correct history or, or try and, you know, create perfect justice or cosmic justice, as Thomas Sowell talks about. Good luck on that. Um, The point in this chapter, the victim cult, though, is to say Jews around the world, though, whether they went to Buenos Aires or New York or Toronto or London, started over in many cases, and they have many times, um, and it doesn't make what has happened to them right. Um, And I don't want to be glib, but they started over. And uh, unlike Palestinians who were put in refugee camps, and many of them are still in refugee camps or what are called refugee camps, and think of themselves as victims. And Yasser Arafat, the, the Palestinian, the PLO leader who was a terrorist and later you know, governed the, the West Bank and, and attempted to govern Gaza, was uh, always claiming to be a victim. And never – he had the choice. He had the choice to do what Jewish people around the world have done and did in the state of Israel. He could have turned the Gaza Strip and the West Bank into a version of Hong Kong or Singapore. He chose not to because he was so entranced by the victim narrative and he was so bitter, kind of like Cain, at, uh, at Israelis. Uh, for winning, uh, really a nationalist movement that won vis-a-vis his own nationalist movement. And rather than try and compromise, rather than try and be a statesman, rather than try and work his way through, he became bitter like Cain. And Palestinians today are still, you know, have lousy incomes in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. I was there uh, back in 2005. I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, So, uh, yeah, all that to say there are positive examples around the world, whether it's uh, Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans or, or Jewish people the world over, there, are, there there's no end to tragedy in human history. There will, there will never be an end. The question is, what can you do about it without creating new victims? And how do you prosper and flourish? And there are good examples in the victim cult. Uh, we talked about one already, Asian Americans. But I would say the experience of Jewish people around the world finding a way creatively in the most challenging of situations to start over and prosper. Uh, and flourish. That's that's another example. Well, again, one has to be careful. One doesn't want to be glib, but uh, they are perhaps another example of that uh, triumph over tragedy. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. And I guess <clears throat> as we get close to the to the end here, um, and I and I the approach here is to look at. There was a story that you told in the book where, at a college, 
you know, they had this big deal about Halloween or, or Halloween outfits and and these advocates uh, just basically, and from what I remember reading, just were belligerent and attacked these professors and saying, you, you are, you're, you've got to stop marginalizing these people and this, that, and the other. And, right. and what, what, what that demonstrated to me and what I see also is I'm, I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to do my thing, but you think I'm a victim. So every time you see a perceived injustice, you stand up for me without asking me, but you're just, right. you're defending me or you, you continue to, to present me to the world as a victim. Right. And, and what, what, what I've noticed happening there is that then when I try to speak as an individual to other people and say, Hey, it's not me. Oh yeah, it is. Cause I, okay. right. I'm standing here as a black man telling you that's not me, right. but you've been programmed to believe and to, and that you must advocate for me. And I don't, right. I don't need you to. And so, I don't know. How do we? How do we? I mean, it's again right. as you talk about true victims. You you should advocate for true victims. But I'm right. not a victim. I don't need your. I don't need your help. Yeah, I don't need your pity. I don't need your help. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, apart from the victim, I had a conversation the other day with a gentleman uh, who emigrated from Sri Lanka to Canada mm-hmm. about 30 years ago. Now he's Tamil by, uh, you know, that's his background. And, and there was a nasty civil war, yeah. um, 30 years ago. And he was, uh, you know, he was tortured in, in Sri Lanka, left for Canada. He's been very successful in Canada. He now is in Toronto, but, he, and he's got a book coming out this spring about his experiences. And he hates this notion, um, of identity politics and he hates woke culture because yeah, it does presume to speak for him and others. And, you know, he meets, you know, very rich white people in Toronto <laughs> in a very, you know, upper class, well, rich neighborhood in Toronto who uh, are all ashamed of their privilege. And he's like, well, listen, uh, you know, and him and I talked about this recently. His name is Roy. And we talked about this and he's been very public about this. So I'm not telling stories uh, out of school here. Um, he hates this this notion of, of privilege because he's like, listen, I've made a lot of money in Canada, he told them. And so have my friends who have my – and his skin color is brown, as he puts it, as Sri Lankan. And he said, listen, I've made a lot of money here. And you know, he disagrees with this notion. He's, he just thinks they don't understand the economy, um, You know that economies grow, that just because one person succeeds doesn't necessarily mean uh, some other person has been taken from. Right. Uh, the, the economy is a growing pie, uh, you know, not if, look, you, you know, you're a pirate in the 1500s and yeah. you steal someone's, you know, gold and booty. But, you know, if um, you know, in most liberal democratic nations, I mean, the economy grows and it's, it's not uh, it's, it's not a fixed pie. So, uh, yeah, there, there is this mythology out there that uh, but I mean, back to your point of, you know, people speaking for you or people purporting to speak for victims. Look, it's one thing again, to speak for someone who doesn't have a voice. But it's it's quite bizarre uh, for people to, you know, and various black leaders, as you know, have encountered this, uh, Walter Williams, and Glenn Laurie and, and Thomas Sowell. Um, and I've got a story in the book of, of one of these gentlemen, I think it was Walter Williams, who's uh, speaking, uh, speaking at a campus, uh, sorry, speaking at an event a couple of years ago. And he says, listen, uh, this notion that we're all institutionally racist these days. No, we've come a long way since the 1930s. 
and even since the 1960s. Uh, but afterward, a young white man comes up to him and tells him, tells him he's dangerous, tells him he's wrong, or in fact asks to speak the next day and publicly tries to rebut this, uh, you know, William's logic here, yeah. uh, William's story. And, um, you know, and, and he's told by this 20-something white kid who knows nothing, doesn't have any history, hasn't lived long enough to understand and doesn't know, you know, the history of even the civil rights movement in the United States and what this fellow faced in Chicago in the 1950s even. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis restaurants, um, and, and this guy's told, no, you're wrong. You know, we really haven't progressed as a, as a country. Okay, um, thanks for that, but, you know, please get a little uh, literate on history and the progress that's been made. So I think you're right. You're, you're, you know, it, it, I think part of the problem here and part of the reason people get into these victim narratives and why it's so powerful today is because they're utopians. Yeah. Uh, they look to the past and they see wrongs. And you can find a wrong yesterday, but you can certainly find wrongs around the world every day of the week, every year of the calendar, going back to time immemorial. So, but the, the danger is people have become utopian about that and say, that was horrific what happened back then. And by the way, my station in life now is because of that. Um, well, um, and and they and and on behalf of others, they kind of want to fix things that happened. I mean, Thomas Sowell talks about cosmic justice, as if we can fix what happened by by reparations today, for example. Or tearing down um, statues. Yeah, well, the, in tearing down statues. Now, look, I mean, that's a side issue. Some statues shouldn't be. I, you know, I don't want statues of Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin. And I, well, I actually think Confederate war generals put them in a museum. They were defending slavery. It's not like Winston Churchill, or it's not like you know uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know. Um, so, but, you know, to the point of, um, where was I? I lost my train of thought there on, on uh, going, oh, utopianism. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the people today involved in identity politics and wanting reparations, not for something that happened yesterday or 20 years ago uh, or five years ago, but, but say 100 years ago or, or 1,000 years ago. Um, they're utopians in a way that Marxists were utopians in the 20th century, but at least Marxists, for all their flaws, and they were incredibly flawed in their analysis, were utopians about the future. They thought they could create a heaven on earth yeah. economically in the future. We've got people running around today, tearing down statues, trying to compensate for history, as if you can sort through all the wrongs in history, and kind of as if in a courtroom, like the billions of people that have been alive, the billions of wrongs that have happened, the billions of tragedies, and somehow money's going to sort, sort all this out, or in the president we're going to be able to kind of correct for history's defects that's a tall order and it's very utopian but weirdly it's applied to the past and of course you can't change the past i mean i think utopians are wrong to think you can create a perfect future but it's even more ridiculous to think you can create a perfect past by compensating today now again within reason compensation for things that happened yesterday or 10 years ago that's why we have courts you know but going back too far that's that's an overfocus on what happened way back when, as opposed to the, the recipes for success today, education, pushing back today on wrongs today, um, making sure you have a flourishing life today, and uh, you know all the, all the ingredients, that character, as you mentioned. So all of that matters to, to one's future, at least in a liberal democratic country where your room to maneuver is pretty wide and pretty deep. Absolutely. Well, Mark, this is, uh, it's gone by quick, but it has been absolutely amazing. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and talk with me and my audience and, and share a little bit. Um, before we close, if you want to re repromote your book, your website, sure. that would be, that would be perfect. Sure. So 
<clears throat> looks like this. I think you've got a copy there as well. I do. And uh, you can find it at uh, vicincult.com, and that'll link you to Amazon.com, but also Barnes & Noble, uh, your local bookstore. You can get the print version. You can get the e-copy. It's all there. So vicincult.com, uh, but uh, available across the United States. Yes, thank you. And it is, it's, thank a, you, it's a good book, and, and I, I highly recommend it, and I, I appreciate your time again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Cecil. Another fantastic episode in the books. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Be sure to look for Changing the Narrative with Cecil Grant Jr. on Facebook and subscribe to our website for more content. Thanks for your support, and remember to always think for yourself.